you're here on a great Sunday. We're starting a stepping into a new series today called Christmas Unfiltered. Christmas Unfiltered. And here's what we want to do really over these next few weeks of December, right on up to Christmas Eve, is we want to take an unfiltered, real look at what that very first Christmas was like and what the coming of Jesus uh, was really like. And here's why. I think we tend uh, to create some sort of um, romanticized, kind of sanitized version uh, of that first uh, Christmas, right? And uh, I, I think there, we, we tend to do that, and, and we tend to create a romanticized version of what was really going on. But my hope is as we unpack this story in a fresh way, uh, what I believe is going to happen is it's going to encourage us. Because what we're going to see in the story of Jesus and in the first coming of Christ, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see darkness. We're going to see a mess. We're going to see chaos. That's what, that's what was present in that. But my prayer for you is that you would be encouraged by that because you would realize if there was darkness in the coming of Christ, then there's hope in my darkness. There's hope and, and light and joy in my mess. And right in the middle of my chaos, God is working. God is working. I think we can see that this morning. And I think it's worth doing because not only do we have kind of a uh, romanticized or sanitized version of the first Christmas, which, by the way, was the most unsanitary thing you can imagine, <laughs> right? But we tend to want to create the perfect Christmas for us, right? We, we, we want it to be just so. How many of you are cursed with the burden of feeling like you want to create the perfect Christmas, right? How many of you are cursed with that nonsense? Okay. Only a handful of you. I hope you find some freedom uh, today, some, some liberty. But I think there's times that for our families, for our kids, we want to create this perfect Christmas, right? We want the house to be uh, just right, you know, decorations, fire in the fireplace, you know, the stockings just looking straight. There's so much Christmas spirit in the air that the kids are not being awful. They're being sweet and precious and generous and patient and all those things and we want the house to be clean and smell like Christmas cookies, right? We want, that's what I want anyway. And so we want to have this perfect Christmas. And I think we all have this picture in our mind of what we want it to look like. And so I came across some things that I hope connect with you. I think this is what we want it to look like. Take a look at this picture. This is the ideal, right? Sitting around. Look how perfect this sweet, the sweet family looks. Everything's just so perfect. That's what we want. The reality tends to look more like this. This is what it tends to look like. That's what it really uh, turns out uh, to be. The cat is eating the decorations. Uh, your pets have knocked over the tree. Uh, this fellow on the right. Now, if it doesn't look like that, it looks like this. Let's look at this next one. It tends to look like that a lot, right? Can, can we just say, parents, would you stop doing this to your babies? Just stop it. At some point, this is going to be labeled child abuse, and some of y'all are going to be in trouble. All I'm saying, <laughs> knock it off. Your babies don't like Santa when they're that little. They hate him. All right? Uh, and if it does, now, this also, the next one I'm going to show you is, is kind of what it was like for me growing up. Now, my sister's sitting over here to the right, so I'm not going to make eye contact with her. But this was, this was kind of, this was what it was like for us <laughs> right here. This was what it was like for us <laughs> right here. <laughs> Here's what I would tell you. That's not my sister, but that's her spirit animal. I'll tell you that right now. That's, <laughs> Alyssa, that's your mama when she was that age. Just face plant, give me that. That's mine. I'll take that. We want it to be awesome. It often works out like this, right? What, what's the point? 
I think there's point, the point is this, at times it gets chaotic, right? It gets chaotic. Our lives can be chaos. Listen, that first Christmas was chaos. That first Christmas was a lot more chaos than it was the nativity that you have set up at home. It was a lot more chaos than it was that perfect um, little scene. And we have this picture in our mind, and we even sing songs about that silent night and, and away at a manger. And listen, I, I love those songs, but that first Christmas was, was not silent. Jesus was a baby. You know what he did? Babies cry. They, they, they struggled. And um, it was chaos. And what we're going to see this morning is right in the middle of all of that, God was moving. God was moving. But to give you kind of a, a clear picture, I want us to take hold of just what this chaotic scene was in this time, in this place where Jesus was born. I want you to take hold of a few things before we get too far in. Think about the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Jesus came at a very chaotic time in history. He came at a very chaotic time in history. Grab your Bible, go to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Uh, for most of us, Luke 2 is the, the narrative that we love to read. It's, it's kind of that full account of, uh, of the story of the birth of, of Jesus. Luke chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. If you're there, let me hear you say, the Bible is true. Bible is true. Amen. So Jesus comes at this chaotic time in history. It says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration with, when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. The first thing I want you to understand in Jesus being born at a chaotic time is this. Jesus was born, we forget, he was born under Roman oppression. He was born under Roman oppression oppression, right? The rule of Rome could have been summed up in a couple of words, oppression and taxation. That's how you sum up the way Rome ruled. Historians believe for the people that Rome conquered, they would tax them as much as 50 or 60 uh, percent. And, and this census, we see that line that a decree went out that all the world should be registered, and we think we're just hearing the first line of the Christmas narrative, but really what that registration was was the latest example of Roman oppression. That's what it was. It was the latest example of Roman oppression. Then you get this guy, Caesar Augustus. That's not his real. He changed his name so that it, he, he had a name that, that reflected divinity because he considered himself to be a God who could do whatever he wanted. He had this massive ego, and so he places these unreasonable burdens of taxes on people with no care for what it does to them. He puts out this registration, which is a massive disruption to people's lives with no thought toward making them go to their hometown, meaning they have to uproot their families, leave their jobs, make this long uh, journey. So it was this very chaotic moment in history. It was also a chaotic time politically. Caesar had tons of rivals. Caesar was very paranoid. So there was, if you were, if you were significant in the Roman Empire, any day could be your last day because all Caesar had to do was think you were after him even a little bit and you just never went home. Caesar had put in place over the Jews a guy named Herod. Herod was a, a Jew himself but the reason Herod ascended to that position was because even though he was a Jew, he was willing to bow down to Rome. 
So Herod ascends to this, and Herod was brutal. Brutal. Herod's been compared to Joseph Stalin by church historians. Herod had um, murdered multiple members of his own family. He had wiped out the dynasty that ruled before him by killing every male in the family. From the oldest to the youngest, he just wiped them out. It's the same Herod who, on hearing that Jesus was born, issued the charge that every baby, under, every baby boy two years and under anywhere near Bethlehem was to be put to death. It's a chaotic time, chaotic time in history. Right? Not only that, but you see that Jesus came in chaotic and inconvenient circumstances. Chaotic and inconvenient circumstances. Just take a moment and remember who Mary and Joseph really were. These are not seasoned adults in their late 30s with some life under their belt. These are teenagers. These are very young. They have no social standing. They have no wealth that they can fall back. There's no plan B, right? This is who they are. Think about Mary for a minute. This is a young teenage girl with essentially no rights, no cultural or social position, no way of really providing or caring for herself. And then Luke 1 happens and God sends an angel to drop this bomb in her lap that says you're going to conceive and you're going to give birth to the Messiah. And Mary's hands go up like all the rest of you ladies' hands would go up to go, mm, hold on, I have a thousand questions as to why what you just said doesn't make any sense. Right? Her hand just goes, wait, what? Hold on. I, that, that can't be true. And look at what it says in Luke chapter 1. If you were in chapter 2, just go back a few verses. Luke 1 verse 35. Mary goes, how can, how can this be? How can this be? And the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So how does Mary respond? And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from a right in the middle of those chaotic, inconvenient, and very risky circumstances. What happened? Mary said yes. Mary said yes. God had given her this call and this mission, and at great cost to herself, she said Yes, think about Joseph. This is a young man just starting his life, right? He's got a good plan. He's a hard worker. He has this beautiful fiance that he can't wait to marry. And then Matthew 1, 18 happens, right? Mary and Joseph are betrothed, and suddenly she is found to be with child. Now, in that moment, one of two things happens. One, uh, Joseph publicly uh, exposes her, accuses her, and she is publicly humiliated and put out of the covenant community to have her baby and raise her baby in shame. That, that's one thing. The other thing was Joseph could do the merciful thing. The merciful thing was to just quietly divorce her, put her behind him, and just move on with his life. And that's the plan. That, that's what he planned to do. It says he, was, he didn't want to hurt her, so his plan is to quietly divorce her. And then Matthew 1, verse 20 we're going to be moving through some various parts of the story. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 says this. 
But as he considered these things, as he considered what things? Quietly, just moving on with his life away from Mary. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. How does Joseph respond? And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel commanded him. Joseph said yes. In the middle of chaotic, inconvenient, and risky, at great cost to himself. Listen, do you think Joseph... Uh, got more popular or found more favor with his friends and family by staying with Mary? No. Do you think Mary's social standing increased by having this baby? No. At great cost to themselves. The mo- here's, here's what I want you to grab real quick. The moment Mary and Joseph said yes to the call of God on their lives, it didn't get easier. It got more chaotic. It immediately got harder. Does anybody connect with that? The moment you step into obedience and do what you believe God has called you to do, so many times we believe that step is going to help us step into a time of comfort and ease and peace. And so many times it is a step into chaos and struggle and hardship. And yet they said yes at great cost to themselves. Jesus came in very chaotic, inconvenient circumstances. Here's the last part of this. Jesus came in a chaotic and inconvenient place. We talked about this a little bit last year. Bethlehem is not some made-up place. It's a real city. It still exists. It's it's there, right? About a hundred miles from where Joseph and Mary uh, lived. I think so many times we think of Bethlehem as a fictional place, right? Like it's Narnia. It's not. It's real. It's a real place. And um, it wasn't some quaint, beautiful little mountain village with a main street. That's not what it was. Bethlehem was small, dingy, dangerous, and inadequate and unimportant in every way. That's what it was. That's what it was. How do I know that? Because Micah told us. Look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Listen to what it says. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Epathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... Too little. So insignificant, you're not even a clan of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Do you see the chaos in the coming of even who Jesus first appeared to? It's, it's chaos, right? Shepherds weren't considered cute and awesome. They were considered outcast and criminals. It's why they were put out. It's why they were out there all the time. Right? Every part of this, what's the point? You can describe the coming of Jesus lots of ways, but one way is he came in the middle of chaos, and so many people just missed it. They just missed it. Our world is chaotic. You have chaos in your world, don't you? And when I say chaotic, I don't just mean busy. Most of the time we say, oh, it's kind of chaotic. We mean it's super busy. 
And I do think we, we make our lives too busy. I think we artificially busy our lives and fill up calendars with things that don't have to be there. Uh, but I'm not just talking about chaos from busyness. I'm talking about just like Mary and Joseph, we experience hardship. We experience loss. We experience people that are grasping for power. We experience social and political unrest. We experience struggle that comes from saying yes to Jesus. We have chaos in our life. But in the chaos, I don't want to miss the glory and the hope and the beauty of the coming of Jesus. And I don't want your life so packed with things, and I don't want my life so packed with things, good things, that I miss the glory of the coming of Jesus. He came in a time of chaos, which means right in your chaos, he can meet you. He's, he can move in your life, and I don't want to miss it. I'm, I'm prone to be the guy who misses things when it gets busy or my mind is distracted. Nothing has taught me that more than, than, than building a house. I'm, I'm doing some of the trim work myself, and I'm so anxious to get it done. I'm going too fast, right? And so I'm cutting seven times to make one board go in, and I just want to drop kick that board through the wall. You know what I mean? Um, but just thinking about that, I came across this video uh, that I, I wanted to share with you. What, so what I'm going to show you, this is a young man who in uh, January of 2007, January the 12th, 2007, he was riding a subway in uh, Washington, D.C. And he gets off the subway, and he goes kind of to the main inter intersection, the main metro building for the D.C. subway, and he kind of finds a spot. Uh, he's wearing nothing but jeans and a, and a ball cap, and he finds a spot, and he backs against a wall by a trash can. He opens this little case, and he begins to play the violin, right? Very unassuming. I want you to see this. Check this video out. It's an older video, so it's a little grainy. You can see him kind of setting up over there to the left, kneeling down. He's getting ready. He's taking his violin out. And he just begins to play in the DC Metro. And you'll see people trickling through, um, you know, just, just going about their lives. They're going to speed it up in just a moment to give you a sense of just how many people we're going through this metro at this time, right? So here he is, he's playing, and they just keep going through. Hundreds and thousands of people just moving through this one area. Look at that. So here's what's amazing about that. This young man played the violin for 45 minutes. 45 minutes he stood in the DC Metro and played the violin. 1,100 people walked by. Actually, 1,097. How many people of 1,097 would you guess stopped and listened? How many, how many would you guess? Say it out loud. It's okay, you can talk. Five, zero? Okay, seven. A total of seven people stopped and listened. What the other 1,090 didn't realize was that was a young man named Joshua Bell. Joshua Bell was a world-class, famous violinist um, who just three nights before had sold out the Boston Symphony Hall in a concert. 
Um, not only did they not realize who was standing there playing, they didn't recognize that he wasn't playing devil went down to Georgia. You know what I mean? He was playing some good stuff. I love devil went down to Georgia too, but that's not what he was playing. He was playing Brahms and Schubert and Mozart, some of the most beautiful music ever written. So not only did they miss the world-class musician that was in the subway, not only did they miss some of the most beautiful music in the entire world, they also didn't stop to see what it was he was playing. Uh, Joshua Bell was playing a Stradivarius violin, and at that time he was holding one that was one of the most expensive in the world, which was worth about $3.5 million. <laughs> yeah. One of the most precious and exquisite instruments in the entire world. Standing in the middle of the metro, 1,097 people walked by him, world-class musician, world-class music, unbelievable violin, and seven notice. Seven, pay attention. What's the point? The point is this. You can take something absolutely beautiful and glorious and wonderful and powerful and you can drop it in the middle of our chaos and we'll miss it. We'll just walk right by it. I don't want to miss it. I don't want to stack so many things in my life that I call important that I miss the glory of Jesus. All right? And maybe this morning your life feels like that metro station. Maybe it feels like that, just chaotic. Your life may feel like a revolving door, just unsettled, chaotic. Maybe it feels more like the real Bethlehem, not the, not the sanitized version, but the inconvenient, chaotic Bethlehem, not the nativity scene we've got at home. Maybe this morning you're walking through some struggle. You're walking through some hardship. You need some encouragement in the middle of your chaos. Listen, as we look at this first Christmas, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that God is always working in our chaos. He's always working. He's always moving. He's always doing something. And as we do, I want us to take hold of some, some powerful truths that are going to meet us in our chaos and give us hope that God is at work. Here's the first thing that I want you to grasp this morning as we look at the story of the coming of Christ, it's this. God is sovereign over everything, even in the chaos. He's sovereign over everything, even in the chaos. Right in the middle of the craziness, right in the middle of your heartache, of your brokenness, of your hardship, of your struggle, and your disappointment, and your loss, and your frustration, God is sovereign over everything. And I want to tell you, believer, this is one of the most important and difficult truths that you can take hold of. It's one of the most critical things for you to grab and put into your heart and treasure into your faith and hold on to and never let go of, but it's also one of the hardest things to, to believe. How many of you can trust, or you, you find it easy to say the words God is sovereign and a whole lot more difficult to hold it as precious to you? Oh, I can say the words. But the moment I'm in the fire, it's a little different, Right? God is sovereign, even in your hardship, even in your chaos, even in your suffering. The Bible is clear that God is in control of every square inch of this world. Do you, it's quiet in here. Do you believe that? That God is in control of every square inch of this world. Psalm 24 says, the earth is whose? The Lord's. And how much of it? Everything that is in it. Everything that is in it. The world and those 
who dwell therein. We belong to him, meaning nothing escapes him, nothing surprises him, and he is always moving to fulfill his sovereign purposes. And we see that in Mary and Joseph. We see it in the coming of Jesus. Look again at Luke chapter 2. Verses 4 through 7. So this registration goes out. They've got to uproot their lives. They've got to make their way to Bethlehem. It says in Joseph in verse 4, also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. We love that. We love that. I want to tell you something. Uh, Mary and Joseph didn't live in Bethlehem. They didn't want to go to Bethlehem. They didn't want to be in Bethlehem. They definitely didn't want to have their baby in Bethlehem. I think they had a great plan in Nazareth to have a baby where somebody could be there to help them, probably in a fairly clean home. They had no intention of going to Bethlehem to a barn. That wasn't the plan. They didn't want to be there, right? This wasn't a fun road trip for them. This wasn't, this wasn't some overnighter to Broken Bow. That's not what was happening right here. It's not what was going on. Mary was eight, at least eight months pregnant, maybe eight and a half months uh, pregnant. She was late in her pregnancy, probably didn't feel awesome. Never been pregnant. I have to assume eight and a half month pregnant women, you may not feel your best every day, right? Definitely didn't feel like a week-long ride on a donkey. It took a week. If you want, ladies, put yourself there, right? It's just us girls. Let's talk about it. Uh, put yourself there for a minute. Eight, eight and a half months pregnant. Husband says, hey, we've got to take a little road trip. Great, where are we going? Uh, well, we've got a, about 100 miles. Uh, that's a long way. How are we going to get there? Uh, I borrowed a donkey. You're going you're gonna to sit on that, and I'm going to walk. It's going to take a week. It's going to be awesome. I don't think so, Bubba. Right? That's where she was. That's where she was. That was the circumstance that Mary and Joseph find themselves in because of this census. Now listen, we have the privilege of hindsight. We have the privilege of looking back and going, oh, we can see what God made a promise in Micah. Yeah, of course, we can see what God's doing. They didn't have the privilege of hindsight. All they had was this this tyrant named Caesar issues a decree. I've got to leave my job, take my pregnant wife. We've got to go. I hope we make it. I hope the food lasts. I hope there's something on the other end of this where we can survive. God, don't let this baby be born. What are we going to do? That's all they knew. And they got up and went. We get to look back. They couldn't see. All they had was obedience. That's all they had. We got to get up and go. They couldn't see that all the while God was moving, that God was using this unnecessary, massively inconvenient decree from Caesar to get them to Bethlehem and fulfill his word. God was sovereignly ruling over the details of their life. And listen, he is sovereignly ruling over yours as well. Sovereign. God is sovereign. And you can trust the sovereignty of God. He is, he is ruling over our lives to fulfill His plans for our good and for His glory. 800 years was the distance between 
when Micah prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem and when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Eight, 800 years. What's the point? The point is this. Caesar may have issued the decree, but Caesar was not in control. Are you with me? Caesar issued the decree, but it isn't Caesar's will being accomplished. The tyrant may have written something on some paper that forced them to get up and move, but it's the hand of God sustaining and holding and navigating them. And my question to you is, you may have some outside things coming into your life, bringing hardship and struggle, but are you being able to trust that it's God's sovereign hand holding you up and moving you along? Caesar wrote the notice, but it was God doing the work. The Bible teaches that God, this one who is in charge of history, is also in charge of our story. Colossians 1.16, listen to this. It says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Your life holds together by the sovereign hand of Jesus. And listen, that isn't a cold reality to just say, well, God's sovereign, so whatever happens, happens. That is a wrapping in a warm blanket and comfort of faith that says, no matter what happens, I'm wrapped in the sovereignty of God, and it is for my good, and it is for his glory, and I can trust him. Right? I think we look at the sovereignty of God and we just go, well, whatever happens, happens. God's going to do what he does. What a cold and, and unglorious way to view the sovereignty of God. God is wanting you to see his sovereignty because he wants to wrap you in it. He wants to hold you in it. He wants to get in the middle of your chaos and he wants to kick the lie out of your mind that somehow your life is being navigated by something like bad luck or poor circumstances or the selfishness of others. And he wants you to be able to rest in the reality that he is moving you along and he's going to do something glorious and you can trust him. You can trust him. So my question is, where do you need to trust the sovereignty of God this morning? Does God have you in some difficult circumstances? Does he have you in a place where you're having to trust? Does he, are you in a, is, is there a pocket of your life, whether it's in your job or your family with your children? Is there a pocket in your finances? Is there a pocket of your life where you're having to fight for everything to trust the sovereignty of God? If everything in this world is held in the sovereign hand of Jesus, it means that nothing engages my life that doesn't first pass through his hand. Now, everybody in this room, there's a reason I was a little bit quiet because you, are, you have experienced things or you are experiencing things that you're having to go. You're telling me God let that pass through his hand to happen to me? He's sovereign. What I'm telling you is, 
He will get right off in the middle of your brokenness and your chaos and he will do something so wonderful and glorious that you will look back at the thing that happened and the circumstance you faced and you'll say, I didn't like it, but I'm grateful for it because look what you did. Right? It, resting in the sovereignty of God helps us put on different lenses. It helps us see different and move different. It helps us say, I may not like this circumstance, but I am trusting God. So God is sovereign at all times, even in the chaos. Here's the next thing. God always keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. I realize that sounds like a thing that we all learned when we were, you know, six years old in Sunday school. I get it. And we hear sentences like that and we go, yeah, I got that one. Let me tuck that away. Do you really have it? Have you built a life? Do you live your every day? Do you wake up in the morning and firmly plant your feet on the reality that God's promises for you are true and will come to pass? Or do you wake up every day, every day and plant your feet in the reality that if I work hard and give it a good effort, hopefully something good will happen and it will work out? Do you really have the reality that every one of God's promises is true for you? I want you to see some of the promises that God made to his people in relation to the coming of Jesus and the life of Jesus. There's too many to go through all of them. There's hundreds in the Old Testament. I just want to point out a few. I want you to see a few of these. And I'll have them all up by the time I work my way through if you want to take a picture of it or, or something like that. I just want you to see some of these promises. In Genesis 3.15, God makes a promise that he's going to send a Savior that will defeat Satan forever. You remember that moment in Genesis 3? He said, I'm going to send one, and he's going to crush your head. That's what he says to you. You'll bruise his heel. He'll crush your head. That's what he, what he says to this to Satan. And guess what happens? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, listen to this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, meaning Jesus became flesh and blood. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. God made a promise in Genesis. Jesus delivered on the promise. Colossians 2.15 says that through the cross he has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God made the promise. Jesus fulfilled it. He kept it. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, God promises that Jesus would be born of a virgin. We've already read this passage. God comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Who? Isaiah in chapter 7. That behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. God made a promise in Isaiah 7. He fulfilled the promise when Jesus was born. Isaiah chapter 9, 
verse 6 and 7, God promised that Jesus would be the descendant of, of David. If you read Matthew chapter 1, a lot of times we skip over that first part of Matthew 1 where it's walking through the lineage of Christ. It is so important to read that during the Christmas season because what it does is it draws the thread from Abraham through David right down to Jesus. A thousand years before his birth, God said he's going to come from the line of David. When Jesus is born, there is a direct thread drawn right through David, right down to Jesus. It was a promise that was made that God kept. Micah chapter 5, we've already looked at it. God promised he would be born in Bethlehem, and he moved the heart of Caesar to make it happen. He moved the way he moved the heart of Pharaoh, he moved the heart of Caesar, navigated this poor couple to get up, landed them in a place. Why? So he could fulfill a promise. Isaiah 35, God promised that Jesus would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf would hear and the lame would leap and the dumb would speak. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist is in prison and he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, I want you to go ask him, are you really the one? Are you really the one who was promised? And do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples? This is what he told John the Baptist's disciples. He says, I want you to go back and tell John, Matthew 11, 4 and 5, go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. And the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. What do you do? Jesus just quoted Isaiah 35 to John's disciples. Why? Because it was about him. It was about him. It was a promise that was made in Isaiah that Jesus kept. In Isaiah 53, God promises Jesus would be rejected by his own people, bruised and pierced for the sins of man. That promise was kept in the cross. And in Psalm 16, 10, God promises that his Messiah would not see decay, but would be resurrected. And bless the Lord, three days later, Jesus arose. There is not time to go through every single promise that has been made and fulfilled in Jesus. There's just not time. There's hundreds. But the point is this. The message of Christmas, the glory and the beauty and the wonder and the joy and the faith building and the security of Christmas is that God is sovereign and God keeps his promises. Every one of them, every detail, without exception, nothing left out, no loose ends. Everything that God has ever promised has been or is coming to pass. It is being fulfilled. And the birth of Jesus is this beautiful, unchangeable, fixed, absolute, eternal declaration that God's promises are true. And the same God who fulfilled his promises down to the detail through the birth of Jesus is going to be faithful to fulfill every promise he made to you. Every one of them. The promise that he'd never leave you or forsake you. He's going to keep that promise. The promise that he's near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. He's going to keep that promise. The promise that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. He's going to keep that promise. The promise that he will give you peace to guard your heart and mind. The promise that as we bring our burdens to him and our weariness to him, 
He restores our soul. He's going to keep that promise. The promise that you were held in his hand and nothing can separate you from his love. The promise that in him you will have hope and a future. promise that every day, every day, every day, His grace will be sufficient and every day His mercy will be new for you. The promise that you will have peace you can't explain. You will have joy unspeakable. You will have victory undeniable. You will have hope unshakable. Every promise is yours and it's true. And you can trust that if he kept every promise to bring Jesus the first time, he's going to keep the promise to bring him the second time. That Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. God, help us live every day as a reality that you are coming. He's coming again. And so I want to ask you this question again. Are there areas of your life where you are battling to believe in the sovereignty of God and that His promises for you really are true? Oh, it's easy to believe it in this room. I'm talking about what are you going to have to battle to believe tomorrow morning when you wake up? When somebody else's decisions and selfish behavior negatively impacts your life, what are you going to believe right then? Can you still stand firm in the sovereignty of God and that every promise he has made is true? So here's here's what we're going to do. Philip and the team are going to come out. We're going to sing for just a moment. And our our team is just going to be down here to pray for you. If you've ever been on a Wednesday night, you kind of know what this moment looks like. It looks a little bit like what we did a few minutes ago. We're going to stand. And if as I say things like, are there areas where you're battling to believe the sovereignty of God, whatever comes to mind, I am inviting you and imploring you, step out and come and let's pray. Let us get under the burden with you. Burdens are heavy, but when you get under them with somebody who loves Jesus and loves you, they get a little lighter. And Maybe you need prayer this morning. Maybe for the first time, You're going to come to church and you don't know why, but you're actually tired of acting like your life is great around all these church people. And you'll just be courageous enough to go, today's the last day, I need somebody to pray for me. Do you know on Wednesday nights, there's times I will get off this stage and I will go over to my elder and ask him to pray for me. You want to know why? Because my life has chaos in it too. And it gets jacked up and messed up. And I need somebody to get up under the burden with me and lift that thing up. So if that's you, we're going to be available to pray. And maybe you're here this morning and and, uh, you don't have a relationship with Jesus at all. You do a lot of church stuff, but you don't know that you have a relationship with Jesus. The first thing that you do to trust the sovereignty and the promises of God is to receive the gift of salvation. It's to say, Jesus, I'm going to trust that who you say you are is who you are. And what you did for me is accomplished for me. That my sins are forgiven and I can be restored to God. That's the first step in trusting the promises. Is making Jesus Lord. If you have not done that, how do I know that I've done that? Has Jesus changed your life? Answer, has Jesus, I met him and he changed me. 
that hasn't happened, you need to come. If you need prayer, I want to invite you to come. Father, I pray that for the next few moments that we would trust your sovereignty like never before. Believe your promises like never before. Help us, God, to be courageous, to be honest, to be transparent, to be authentic right now. Holy Spirit, I pray you would move. We ask you to come in Jesus' name.